Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Spreading the Word. I'm your host, Paul Bizanti, and today we continue our third of four lessons in our annual men's retreat, Seeking to be Faithful in Our Generation. This time our guest speaker is going to lead us through a passage in Ephesians, and he's titled his lesson, Faithful Together, the Peculiar Christ Community. So without any further ado, we'll turn it over to Sean Dutile. Heavenly Father, we are about to open your word and to consider the depths of um, depths of your truths. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come and to uh, tear open the, um, the understanding of our minds. Lord, to give us humility, to give us understanding. We ask you, Lord, to speak to us and to uh, illuminate for us all that we need to see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, let's read that together, uh, 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he, um, that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. All right, so I want to talk about uh, four things today uh, from this passage that I think are helpful as we consider what it means to live, um, uh, live as Christians together. I want to talk about, first of all, the infatuation of Diana. 
the splendor of Christ, the peculiar, the peculiar Christ, and the peculiar Christ, three things, three things, the infatuation of Diana, the splendor of Christ, and the peculiar Christ community. So let's talk about the first one there. Uh, the city of Ephesus at the time uh, of Paul's writing was the fourth largest city in the world. It's, it's estimated that Ephesus was a city of roughly, at the time, 250 to 300,000 people. And Ephesus was a coastal city, which means that it was a place of trade and economic activity. Okay? Uh, at one point, it was the capital of Rome in the Asian provinces. Ephesus was a prominent city in the ancient world in large part because it was the central worship spot for the Greek god Artemis, or Diana, as was her later uh, Roman name. Okay. So Diana was the goddess of the hunt, of the moon, the nature in uh, Roman mythology. She was associated with wild animals and woodland and having the power to talk and to control animals. Okay. Diana was also known as the virgin goddess of childbirth and women. And the temple of Diana at Ephesus once ranked as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay. Because of its elaborate size, uh, its unbelievable size and elaborateness, the, the temple of Diana in Paul's day was supported by, get this, 127 columns, each 60 feet high. The temple covered an area 130 yards by 60 yards, making it four times larger than the Pantheon, uh, I'm sorry, Par Parthenon in Athens, and every bit as uh, long as a football field from back of one end zone to back of another. Okay. Antiper of Sidon, uh, Sidon uh, who compiled the list of the seven ancient wonders of the world, um, once described the finished temple of Artemis or Diana in, the, in these words. He said, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon on which a road is a road for chariots, in the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, in the hanging gardens of Babylon, in the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids in Egypt, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, or Diana, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy, and I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. Okay. The temple at Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And one commentator said that kings, merchants, and dignitaries would come to Ephesus just to participate in the worship of the goddess Diana in her temple. Okay. So if you were to stand uh, in this temple or even approach it from the outside, you would be awestruck in part because of how massive it was and in part in wonderment of how people without machinery could even build it. Okay? So let's consider some things. The Ephesian people would have taken pride in the fact that their city was the home of the goddess Diana. They were proud of it. It was an identity marker for them. Their citizenship was from Ephesus and our city is the home of the great goddess Diana. Okay. They also felt that their city was doing well, it was doing as well as it was and prospering quite nicely because it clearly had the protection of Diana. 
The non-Christian Ephesian people would have looked at the prosperity of their city and they would have said to themselves, it is because we have made this magnificent temple of the great god Artemis that we are prosperous today. And as with any god we choose to worship, our life will take the shape of that worship. So for example, if city A worships the god of money, then her education, her economy, her extracurricular activities and everything else will take shame, shape around that God. If we worship the God of money, then we will build an education system that prepares us to make money. If we worship the God of money, we'll create products and goods that help us make money. If we worship the God of money, we'll spend our downtime investing ourselves in the God of money. Everything in our lives will take shape around the God that we worship. And this was the case in Ephesus as well. The entire way of life in Ephesus was shaped by the worship of the goddess Diana, whether they realized it or not. An example of this is found in Acts 19, when Paul was in Ephesus, right? He's preaching the good news of Jesus, and, and, and it tells of a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines to the goddess Diana and, quote, brought in no little business thereby, okay? There were people in Ephesus whose entire careers were based on the worship of the goddess Diana and keeping her worship going in their city, okay? So the worship of Diana was not just a private spiritual practice of some of the citizens. The worship of the goddess Diana was an Ephesian way of life, okay? And this is true of your city as well, by the way. The God that your city worships is not just a private spiritual practice of the citizens. The true God of your city is a way of life. Because what is a God? Well, a God is something you turn to for ultimate comfort from pain, meaning in life, or security from loss. A God is something you turn to for ultimate comfort from pain, meaning in life, or security from loss. And the God that you worship will give shape to everything you do with your life. The God we worship is the primary determinant of what we do or do not do in our city. It's also the dirt of what we make in our city, it's what we create in our city, what we emphasize in our city, and the policies we implement in our city is a direct correlation to the God that we worship. Okay? And so the best way to start a riot in a city, in case you wanted to, <laughs> the best way to start a riot is to attempt to dethrone the gods of the city. Because in doing so, you would threaten to change not just the city's worship practices, but their very way of life. And so, for example, if your job is your ultimate source of security, it's your God, okay, um, then the most destructive thing a person can do to you is make an accusation against you that could jeopardize your job, okay? Um, if your family gives you ultimate meaning in life, then the worst thing that can happen to you is for you to lose your family. And if you knew a certain someone was responsible for the loss of your family, whether that be yourself or someone else, you could never forgive them. 
Okay? If alcohol is what you turn to for ultimate comfort from pain, then the moment your wife tries to take alcohol away from you by suggesting that you should not drink anymore is the moment you blow up and sink into deep denial. Why? Because she's threatening to take away your God of comfort. Okay? Folks, the best way to start a riot in a city is to attempt to dethrone the gods of the city because in doing so, you would threaten to change uh, not just the city's worship practices, but their very way of life. And that is exactly what happened when Paul went to Ephesus. Okay? In Acts 19, a riot breaks out in Ephesus because Paul preached that Christ, not Diana, was God. And the result was that it threatened to overturn their very way of life. So Ephesians, I'm sorry, Acts 19.23, about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, his career was based on Diana. It says, he called them together, a crowd, with the workers of similar occupation. Okay, let's get a union going here. And he said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade, by the worship of the goddess Diana. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia in the world worship. Okay? Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath. Why? Because Paul was threatening to take away their ultimate source of comfort. And they cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. Folks, the city of Ephesus at the time worshipped the goddess Diana. They were infatuated by her. She is what the city turned to for ultimate comfort from pain, meaning in life, and security from loss. And the moment Paul attempted to dethrone her, it put the city into an angry panic because just like an addict, the people believed they could not live without their precious Diana. Okay? So the first thing we see is the infatuation with Diana. Diana was, or, or Artemis, was, the was what the Ephesian people turned to for ultimate comfort from pain, security from loss, and meaning in life. The second thing we see is the splendor of Christ. So what Paul is trying to do in this letter, I believe, is effectively dethrone the goddess of Diana in the hearts of the people, and he does so by enthroning Christ before them. So here's how he does it. So one commentator noted about uh, the first chapter of Ephesians that we just read, that Paul is transported to the limits of language in order to describe the enthroned Christ. Okay. So when you read verses 3 through 14, you actually read one long run-on sentence. In the original Greek, there are no periods in these verses. It's as if Paul is brought to the limits of language as he attempts to describe the glory of Christ to the people. So listen again 
to the words that Paul used as he, as, he sta- as he stands beneath the enthroned Christ in his heart. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in, in the heavenly places. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. We have been predestined, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. So in those verses, Paul uses words like blessed, Heavenly, holy, blameless, glorious, riches, lavished, wisdom, insight, mystery, fullness, hope, praise, and glory. It's as if Paul imagines himself standing underneath the seventh wonder of the ancient world in Ephesus saying, this temple here, guys, does not compare to the glory of Christ. Every word of this first chapter is meant to reassure the the Ephesian Christians that no matter how magnificent the temple of Diana is in your city, the one you walk by every day, and the one dignitaries come to your city specifically to see, no matter how much security you think it provides you, no matter how much your temple gives you meaning for existence, whatever you think Diana does for you does not compare, Paul says, to what Christ has done for you. Okay? What, in fact, if you went to Ephesians today, not Ephesians, if you went to Ephesus today to see this seventh wonder of the ancient world, well, here's what you'd see. One pathetic pillar. In this first chapter, Paul says, the world has never seen anything so glorious as Jesus Christ. But why is that? Why is Jesus more glorious than Diana? I want want you to think about this for a moment. The reason the Ephesian people believed that Diana was so great was because in part they believed that they were so great. So think about it. The people of Ephesus stood before their colossal temple and they said to themselves, look what we've built, our goddess Diana. Wow, she must be pleased because look, our city is prospering. People are coming here just to see her temple. People envy us and want to move here. Our economy is flourishing. The goddess of Diana is clearly pleased with us because what god would not be pleased with worshipers who have done such extraordinary things to worship them? Boy, aren't we good. Look at this temple. Okay. Do you hear the narrative there? And, and, and by the way, this is, this is the narrative of almost every religion in the world. Nearly every religious person in the world believes that they have God's favor or that they have the favor of the gods because of the good they have done. We perform these rituals. We've built this glorious temple. We don't do bad things. We have stable families. We work hard and are good citizens. We support the king. We pay our taxes. We vote on the correct side of the ballot. We have, we've never murdered anyone. Our God must be pleased with us. Okay? And the reason things are so well for us is because we are so well, 
And clearly when you look around, the gods believe that too. Okay? Folks, every god we turn to for ultimate comfort from pain, meaning in life, or security from loss, if it is not Jesus Christ, will give us reasons to believe that we are pretty good and others not as good. And this is the seedbed for oppression in the world. Whenever you have oppression in the world, you have one group of people looking at another group of people saying, we are good, you are not, and here's why. Okay. Folks, the reason, the reason the Ephesian people believe that Diana was so great is because they thought that they were so great. Their God was so glorious because the people believed that they were so glorious. Look what, look what we, God must be pleased with us, right? But I want you to notice what Paul says in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul says over and over and over again, Christ is so glorious and you need forgiveness. Christ is so glorious and you need grace. Christ is so glorious and you need redemption. Christ is so perfect and you so needful of his perfection. Never once in this chapter does Paul mention what we have done for Christ. In this chapter, it's only about what Christ has done for us. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us. He predestined us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He lavished grace upon us. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He united all things to himself. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. The non-Christian Ephesian people took credit for the favor of their gods. But what, God, what Paul tells us here is that we, we have God's favor, but we can't take the credit. Paul says here, we have God's love, but we don't deserve it. We have God's blessing, but we deserve his curse. We have God's adoption, but we deserve his abandonment. Okay? We have hope in Christ, but what we really deserve is hopelessness without him. Okay? And what this means, folks, is that because we as Christians cannot take credit for God's wonderful favor upon us, we stand uniquely poised to be a part of a true peace movement in the world. How so? Well, God didn't wait for me to be good enough to grant me his favor. Therefore, I don't have to wait for other people to be good enough to grant them mine either. And of no other religion is this true. Every other religion says you are right with God because you have done so well. But Paul says here that Christ is so glorious because of what he has done and not because of what I've done. God did not choose me because I built him something. God chose me and in his great love, he says he wants to build me something. Jesus left this earth saying, I go to prepare a place for you. He did not say, all right, fellas, get to work building me something. Okay? This, folks, is the splendor of Christ that Paul is reaching to the ends of human language to describe for us. Christ is like nothing you've ever seen before. He is glorious and he is building us a place. He is not impressed with our places. We see the infatuation of Diana, which was not just a private worship thing, it was a way of life. Secondly, we see the splendor of Christ. 
There is nothing like standing before the enthroned Christ. I don't care how tall your pillars are. Okay. The third thing we see is the peculiar Christ community. So Paul says here that the church is different because she has nothing in herself of which to boast. All of her boasting is in Christ. And the implications of this, if we truly understand it, is profound. So I want to share with you what I believe are three strong implications for the church's life together, if what I've just said is true. Three implications, three things it means if Christ is who he says he is. The first thing, oh, sorry. Three things it means. It means, first of all, that the church is the only place in your community where true humility exists. The church is the only place in your community where true humility exists. In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, an, an expert in the law asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Luke says he asked this question to, quote, justify himself. So without doing an exegesis on this particular Luke 10 passage, let, let, think, let me ask this question, okay? Uh, why ask the question, who is my neighbor? Unless you think there are some people who do not qualify as being your neighbor. Okay? In other words, if you think everyone is your, is your neighbor, then you don't ask the question. But this man did not consider everyone to be his neighbor, and so he asked, okay, so who is my neighbor, Jesus? Okay. This man wanted to find justification for the unequal way he treated people. This man did not love his neighbor as himself. He loved some of his neighbors as himself, and the others could just as well lie in a ditch and die because Jesus is just about to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay? This man had taken pride in his, quote, expert knowledge and was arrogantly convinced that he could see and others could not, and the result was that he felt justified in segregating people into neighbors and non-neighbors, treating some this way and others that way. This, folks, is where social inequality stems from in the world today. It stems from the prideful belief that I can see and they cannot and ultimately culminates in the segregation of people into groups of neighbors and non-neighbors. These people are enlightened, these people are not. These people get it, these people do not. God loves these people, these people God clearly does not. Okay? Wherever there is social inequality in the world today, there is always A, a belief in one's rightness over another, and from there grows B, the separation of neighbors and non-neighbors, or those deserving of justice and respect from me, and those who don't. Okay? In fact, if these two things had not happened in the human heart, then the slave trade, so uh, dark in the American history, would never have happened. Why? Because what did the slave traders and slave owners first convince themselves of in the early years of slavery in order to justify their practice? They convinced themselves that African people were an inferior race. We can see they cannot. 
And because they were inferior, we don't have to include them in the command to love thy neighbor as thyself. We can pretty much treat them like cattle, and we did. Okay. But the Christian church folks can never walk down this road. You know why? Because the Christian church has no grounds to walk down this road. A Christian, I want you to hear this. A Christian is not a Christian because he knows more than someone else. He's not a Christian because he's lived better than someone else. He's not saved because he's kept certain rituals and others, has not, and others have not. A Christian is not a Christian because he can exegete the baptism verses better than the Baptist. A Christian is not a Christian because he does not drink sex and drugs. A Christian is in a right relationship with God by complete virtue of what Christ did and not because of what we did. Amen. Church, Church of Christers, hello. Mm -hmm. Our knowledge of the Bible is not what sets us apart from other people in the world. Our forms of worship do not set us apart from anyone in the world. Our weekly taking of communion and all the things we think comes with church those things do not set us apart one iota for any human person in the world today or who has ever come before us because if they did set us apart, then we would have a religion no different than the goddess Diana. Look what we've done for our God. He must be so proud of us. We're so smart. We have the correct interpretation of the Bible. We have the right rituals. We know the right forms. We're in. You guys are out. I'm sorry. Folks, that's nothing but pride and arrogance and a stinky superiority over others. What Paul says in this chapter is, if we have any righteous distinction at all in this world, it is upon the sole fact that we've come to a place where we've fallen flat on our face and said, in Christ alone my hope is found. The Christian community, folks, is the only community that can honestly and genuinely get on their knees every day and pray, Lord, there is not a single soul in this city that you love any more or any less than you love me. I am no more special and no more deserving of your mercy than any human heart currently beating in my neighborhood. If I am special, I am special because of what you've done and not because of what I'm doing. The church is the only place in the community where true humility exists. And let me ask, why is that important? Why is that? Because humility is the remedy for injustice in the world. Understand that when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing to a world that was not humble. The Roman Empire did not pride itself in humility. <laughs> <laughs> okay, humility was not a virtue of admiration in that day, and I don't believe it's much of a virtue in our day either, right? So let's define humility. Humility can be defined as freedom from pride or arrogance, a low view or really a correct view of one's own importance. There was almost nothing in the Ephesian culture that promoted humility as an admirable virtue, and there's almost nothing in our current culture that promotes it either. Right? Humility is thought in many ways to be dangerous. The humble get walked on, or they miss opportunities in this world. Right? 
Instead of humility, the virtue probably promoted most in our current culture is the virtue of self-expression. Right? Self-expression is the act of making oneself known to the world. It says, get your name out there. Get yourself out there. And so, you know, this is what social media is all about, right? Social media personifies you and what you're doing. And by the way, we only show the parts of ourselves we want to. Uh, there's, you know, there are even Facebook filters that take what you post and offer to push your influence further into the social media world, right? But have you ever noticed that there are no Facebook humility filters? Like, there are no filters that say, ah, uh, Sean, you said too much there uh, about yourself. That sounded rather know-it-all, okay? Too many pictures of yourself. Uh, you, you weren't wearing very modest apparel in that picture. We think you're posting this to get a reaction. Please consider reposting. <laughs> no, there's no such app, right? The Roman culture and our culture today does not promote humility as a virtue of admiration. It's a, uh, it's a get-you-nowhere-in-life virtue. But for the Christian folks, humility needs to be the virtue before all virtues. Andrew Murray would say, humility is the virtue which makes possible all other virtues. He says, humility comes before love. Humility comes before kindness. Humility comes before honesty. If you are not humble, the other virtues are not possible to you. So how do you become humble? Well, I actually don't believe you can make yourself humble. You can make yourself arrogant on your own. We're pretty good at that. That's true. Okay. You, can make your, uh, you can make yourself a jerk on your own. You can make yourself selfish on your own. But you cannot make yourself humble on your own. True humility comes not as a result of what you do, but as a result of something that you become aware has been done to you. And that's something may be the consequences of your actions as you bottom out or otherwise experience pain. That's something may be a sickness which takes away your ability to do the things you used to do. That's something may be a near bankruptcy. Or that's something may be God's specific intervention in your life like that of Paul, a Damascus Road experience. Or your humbling may simply be the awareness that there's nothing whatsoever that you can lift to God for which God says, boy, you're really good, I want you. It's Christ alone. Amen. And that truth, embedded deep in your heart every day, will flatten you. And you will say, God, there's nothing I have that you need, but oh, you want me, and I'm flattened by that reality. Okay? No matter how a humbling uh, comes about in your life, you can never orchestrate it on your own. It must happen to you. A.W. Tozer once said, It's doubtful whether God can use a person greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. <laughs> I don't like that. And I think there's some strong truth in that. that folks, the, the remedy for injustice in the world is a profound humbling because you cannot hate someone un unless you look down on them or look up to them. I'll say that again. You cannot hate someone unless you look down on them or look up to them. When you look down on somebody, you feel better than them and can eventually justify mistreating them. And when you look up to someone, you can grow jealous of them and eventually direct your energies to bringing them down. 
What humility does in the, in the heart is it evokes in you an honest and accurate assessment of yourself such that when you look at other people, you neither look down on them in disgust or up to them in jealousy, but you see everyone as equals, equal with yourself. Doesn't matter your education, doesn't matter what you did and I did not. Humility says, you're made in the image of God, brother. <laughs> You can say, he's a sinner. Hmm, so am I. You can say, he's a jerk. Hmm, yeah, but I've been a jerk too. You can say, I don't feel as, as good as so-and-so. But in Christ's eyes, I know we're equal. You can say, they've done bad things. But you know what? I know I'm capable of those things too. Folks, the church is the only place in the community where true humility can exist. And until true humility exists, love cannot exist. True. True. Okay. Secondly, the church is the only place in the community where every human person gets royalty status. The church is the only place in the community where every human person gets royalty status. People who worshipped the goddess Diana valued some people and devalued others. Any god that requires some work of your own in order for you to be accepted will value some people and devalue others, right? Uh, the, uh, those who do these things are valued. Those who do not do these things are not valued, okay? The God who is probably actually most violently against humanity today is the God of Darwinism. The God of Darwinism says, we all got here by the strong eating the weak, and therefore it is perfectly acceptable both in times past and forevermore for the strong to continue to eat the weak. If Darwinism is true, there is no good reason why we should not just get rid of all the weak in society. You can say, I shouldn't do that, but you have no reason to say that, if that's your worldview, right? Darwin said, the strong are valued, the weak are not. Sorry. But the gospel says, none of us are valued because of what we've done. We are valued because of what he did for us. Okay? Jesus made us acceptable when our sins made us unacceptable. Okay? Jesus gave us value when our sins devalued us. Jesus gave us royalty status when we were nothing but filthy wretches. In this way, folks, the Christian has reason to value every human person in our cities regardless of what they've done. There are, no, there are not valuable and unvaluable people in our communities. If we are Christians and every human person, whether unborn or crippled with dementia, is more valuable than anything else in the entire world ever. What God created on the sixth day was the pinnacle of creation. He created everything in days one through five for the thing he would create on day six. Okay? If we are Christians, then if the, if the state capital burned to the ground today, that would not be a, 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 one iota as sad as one person dying today. Okay. 
For the Christian, there is no such thing as a non-royal person. Because there is no such thing as a person so bad that Christ did not die to make them royal. Amen. Okay. If this is true, then this ought to impact the way we interact with each other in the church and the way we look at every human person we pass by every day. There is no person as valuable in this world as the person you're sitting beside right now. And there's no one less valuable than the person you're sitting beside. That's how God... Nothing in creation is as important as the human person. Okay? So the church is the only place in the community where true humility exists, and true humility has to exist for true love to exist. Was Christ humbled himself, became obedient to death. The ultimate virtue of Christ is humility, which empowered him and led him to love, right? The church is the only place in the community where every human person gets royalty status regardless of what they've done or what they're doing. They are royal. They are worthy of Christ's death. They may not be saved yet, but Christ died for them. Okay? Thirdly, and this is what we'll close with, the church is the only place in the community where fear does not rule. The church is the only place in the community where fear does not rule. If you're a Christian today, you do not have to live in fear that you are not good enough for God. If you are a Christian, you can rest in the fact that no one <laughs> is good enough for God, but that in Christ, He made you good enough. As Christians, we don't have to live in fear that God will reject us. Instead, as Christians, we can live in gratefulness that God has already accepted us in, in the beloved. There is no place for fear for the Christian. If you're fighting a battle against addiction right now, and, and you're fighting it because you fear God will reject you if you don't fight it, you've missed it. God does not want us to fight our battle against Amalek, afraid that he might reject us if we don't. God wants us to fight our battle against sin upon the assurance that God has already accepted us. If you fight your battle against Amalek out of the fear of rejection, you're fighting a losing battle. You've already crossed the Red Sea. You're in. What are you afraid of? The challenge now is to fight the battle against Amalek from a place of assurance that Christ will carry me through to the end if I set my eyes on him. I don't need to fear his rejection. I need to take assurance in his acceptance. And it is that calm, that peace, that assurance that in part can empower us. Okay? Fear, you've heard the song, is a liar. Right? Fear says you, you have something to lose. But as long as you are fixing your eyes on Jesus every day, there is nothing you can ever lose that Christ will not give back to you fourfold in the end. Okay? As Christians, we do not need to fear God's rejection. We need to, do, to, to bask in his acceptance. Okay? But we also don't need to fear the darkness. We also don't need to fear... So, so my wife and I <clears throat> homeschool our five kids. Wow. <laughs> well, <clears throat> three of them are schooling, two of them are not. And it's been my experience that the vast majority of people who homeschool um, homeschool their children out of fear. They fear the influences of the school. They fear what their children will be taught. 
They fear their children falling into the wrong crowd. They fear missing out on their early years, something like that, right? And I believe that all of those reasons are incorrect reasons for a Christian to homeschool. My wife and I do not homeschool our kids because we are afraid of the darkness. We homeschool our kids because we believe it's the best way to prepare our kids to engage the darkness. In many ways, folks, Christians today often train their children to be afraid of darkness. Stay away. Evil people, bad, bad things. Right? But that's not how we teach our children. My wife and I are, are equipping our children to incarnate darkness. We're not teaching them to run from it. Okay? My 15-year-old is playing uh, varsity soccer for the first time this year. She made the team and is uh, even a starter right now, and I'm proud of her. But two weeks ago were the tryouts for the team, and, and uh, the morning or two before her first tryout, she came up to me in my office and she said, Dad, uh, I'm kind of afraid of the girls' influence on me. I don't want their ways to rub off on me. And I said, Honey, you don't need to be afraid of their influence. They need to be afraid of yours. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I said, you know who you are. They don't know who you are. Get in there. You'll be fine. Okay? The same is true for us men. We don't need to be afraid of the darkness. We need to courageously incarnate the darkness. That's what our God did, right? And here's how this looks for me. By the grace and strength of God, my leadership of my community... And I see it as I'm not just leading a church. I'm shepherding a community. Okay? My leadership of my community goes like this. I don't see myself as tiptoeing around my community, hoping my community will let me be a part of what they're doing. Can I come in? Can I come in? Okay. Do you think my community knows what they're doing? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? Instead, I am boldly leading forward in my community saying, this is the way we should go. Are you coming or not? You can worship your gods, but let me tell you ahead of time where they lead you. Come follow me as I follow Christ. Folks, I'm not afraid of the darkness, and neither do you need to be. Okay? The church is the peculiar Christ community because it is the only place in the community where true humility can exist and therefore where true love can exist. It's the only place in the community where every person gets royalty status regardless of what they've done. And it's the only place in the community where fear does not rule. Let's, let's close, let's stop there and, and pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, the implications of your cross are beyond our comprehension. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us if we have said that anything but your dying love for us is a reason for our separateness. God, we are good because you made us good. We are righteous because you made us righteous. If we are different in our community, we are different because you made us different. And we ask you, Lord, for the humility that knows that we are saved by grace alone. We ask you, Lord, for the courage to enter the darkness of our city and not be afraid of it. And lastly, Lord, we ask you 
we ask you to help us to treat each human person we interact with in the church or outside of the church as worthy of more honor and respect than anything that has ever lived at any time in the history of the world. Teach us, Lord, to, te to, to, to love people in that way. As we lead into our final hour, Lord, we ask you to, uh, to close our minds out with something uh, uh, um, chewable to apply as we leave. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Sean. We appreciate your words. Some more challenging lessons and thought-provoking ideas from God's Word. As always, we appreciate you coming by to listen today, and we encourage you to reach out to us if there's ever anything we can support you in. And we just pray that this can be an encouragement and support to you in your walk. God bless. Thank you.